0: Welcome to The Few Podcast. Never in the
1: field of human content, but so much owed by so many, can so few. So
2: you want to become one of The Few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time.
0: I have a dream.
2: Hear inspiring stories
0: from The Few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's is a day that brings us all together. Marvel. Four. Three. One. We have a now, with your hosts, Boo and Sean.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Few Boom. Time stamping it. Still in lockdown for the time machine. Two hundred years uh, from now, we'll be listening to this very specific podcast and reflecting on. Remember those days when uh, we were back in lockdown. I've just realised I've accidentally made myself look like the Chicago Bears number one supporter. I don't know how I managed to do that. It was just been a, <laughs> the outfit that was lying at the fl- at the bottom of the door and I walked up, up here today. Anyway, lucky it's a podcast. Uh, hey, Shawnee, how are you, mate?
2: Yeah, really good, mate. Really good. Uh, uh, thankfully, we got out of lockdown on Sunday up here in Queensland, but um, yeah, definitely feeling for everyone in New South Wales for sure.
1: Tell you what, wish I had shares in microphones and webcams. No doubt, you're absolutely killing it. I, I'm really excited today. A little bit, I'm If you're sensing I'm subdued, I've had about two hours sleep thanks to a, uh, a screaming uh, four-week-old child all night. Trying to find that yin and yang balance between being a good father and, and functioning the next day to actually earn some money to keep the child in clothes and food. So uh, I apologise if I tune out or go cross-eyed. Today's guest I'm super excited to have a chat about because this particular individual... Operates in a space, I think, that's quite emotionally charged. And we have a lot of people here on the few that own their own businesses. One day, they're looking to exit a business. You've been around it a bit too, haven't you, Sean? You, you kind of know that exiting or trading businesses, but particularly getting out of a business is quite a, quite a big deal, right?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I, I spent well over eight years in corporate finance myself. So capital raising, acquisitions, mergers, exits, all that sort of stuff. And yeah, it's an interesting space. Mind you, I've done those transactions on my own probably over 23, 24 times now, I think, with any sort of acquisition or exit. And yet, it can be an emotional experience. It can be, it can be challenging, trying to manage people's expectations and all the rest of it. So I'm really excited to uh, chat to somebody who does this uh, full-time as their day job and helping other people to really realize the value from, from their business. There's
1: always a bit of a formula and people sometimes cut corners and don't get the right advice when they're, uh, when they're doing this. So look, with no further ado, let's bring this superhero Pro exiteer onto the show, Simon Badard, Thanks so much, mate, for coming onto the few with Sean and myself today. Oh, my absolute pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on.
2: Excellent. So I might jump in first and ask the question What got you into helping people exit businesses, advising people on exiting businesses? You know, I found that space to it could be quite transactional in a lot of ways rather than, I suppose, you know, as necessarily relationship driven as you know, what I do now. And that was my take on it. But what do you feel you draw from the experience of, of helping people, you know, exit every day?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question, Sean. And I think you sort of touched on it there about seeing how transactional the industry can be. My brief background, I guess, you know, I was in banking and finance and whatnot, and and left in the GFC and. Started a business with my wife. We ended up buying, you know, another company before we sort of built it up a bit and sold out. And so we did that full cycle, you know, we, you know, start up buying, building, then selling. And, you know, I find that that whole cycle of business quite interesting. Some people just do it once in their whole life. Some people like yourself, Sean, you know, have done it many, many times. And, you know, what I found being in business for myself was it was both exhilarating and yet absolutely freaking terrifying particularly the first time round, putting money in, you, you know, I, I often laugh and say to people, if you haven't had a couple of sleepless nights where you're not sure if your business is going to make it, you probably haven't been in business.
2: Just a couple. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Well, you know, you have
2: to. A couple, have a couple to, of months inconsistently you know, or years even. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously people listening to this can't see, but I did have hair once. Right. So, you know, um, but um, Look, I came out of our first real kind of venture. I did do another stint in corporate, but it really changed my life being a business owner and, and seeing what it was like on the other side of the fence. And I did find it terrifying at stages and stressful and all those sort of things, but I did find it super exciting and I developed a real passion for it. And I guess after I, I finished that stint, I went back into corporate for a little while, and which was kind of a good experience, but also amusing when you've been on the other side of the fence. My wife and I decided we wanted to go into business for ourselves again after a number of years in corporate and we sort of decided that startups were way too hard so let's go and buy a business. And kind of knew what we were looking for, we were self-funded, we were really on a mission and so we went out and and started making a lot of inquiries and dealing with a lot of business brokers and I guess what we found in that experience as a buyer was that it was very transactional. There was a lot of brokers out there who I felt lacked the education experience qualifications to really be representing a lot of the clients that they were, were representing
2: one thing i found simon when i got my uh, business broking license was that i had to get my real estate license and it was about 5 minutes of extra stuff yes that was the business broking license which the 95% or more of the content i'd just done was about open houses and auctions and all sort of crap whereas as a business broker that's a very strategic transaction. And the license that they've created is a tiny extension to the real estate license. And it, I honestly believe it is not even remotely the same thing. And it was, it was bloody laughable. It really was. I found that. And I think that's where a large part of the, the lack of knowledge and education is coming from is that you could pretty much just open a Cornflakes packet and get a qualification as a, a business broker. You know,
0: Spot on. That's exactly right. Whoever dreamt up the idea that Business brokers and real estate should be real estate agents should be managed under the same legislation. Clearly, has rocks in their head. Government mate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, look, you know, and in and in fairness, Boo, like a lot of it's down to the fact that, you know, if you go back historically, a lot of real estate agents were out in the bush and they were dealing with farmers who had a business attached to that property, and so it was complicated, and it sort of evolved, and I, unfortunately. The legislation hasn't kept up with the level of sophistication that's really required for this kind of work. And so, you know, what you end up with is a lot of half-cocked semi-real estate agents thinking, well, if I could sell the business, they'll let me sell the property. And, you know, it's sort of that that evolution. And and just frankly, there's a lot more real estate agents than there are business brokers. So they have a larger voice when it comes to the legislation and the, the lobbying. So it is what it is. I think we saw a, a big gap there, and you know, I guess when I was making inquiries on businesses and people were sending me one or two page Word documents that were unformatted and calling it an information memorandum, it just made me want to throw up. And this is the guts of this, right? Is that I didn't end up buying a business. I got probably a little too cute and thought I was too clever and negotiated myself out of some deals because I was playing trying to play too hard, but. I did find some deals like, and not all brokers were like that. I did meet some, some guys who were professional and I, I you know, took my hat off to them, but far too many of them were not representing their clients the way they should. And what it made me think about and my wife think about was that, hey, imagine that was us. Like when we were running our business, like we were absolutely all in, boots and all. Like if this fails, we lose our home. Our kids are, you know, God knows where we're going to go live that sort of pressure is is real and palpable. And, you know, I guess I looked at a lot of these business owners and I thought, you know, this business is probably their largest asset. And the thought of somebody going out there and having a, you know, share portfolio or whatever else being managed by some person who's not qualified to do so is, is unheard of, right? You know, we're so used to regulation in financial services. And so I just looked at that and thought, you know, I wonder how many of these brokers have even done this with their own money. You know, here you are telling a, a business owner what to do when you've not done it. So I guess we looked at that and saw there was a real gap between what the market and these business owners deserved and and what a lot of them were getting. I'm not going to say we rushed off completely inspired. oh wow, we found the next big thing. Like to be frank, from having that thought to actually launching exit advisory group was probably a two-year gap. You know it took a real lot of time to really ruminate on sort of think about it and research it and whatnot. but I guess bottom line, what it all comes down to for me, guys, is that we have a deep-seated belief that it's actually business owners and entrepreneurs who actually change the world. Like these are the people that look out there and go, I can see that this thing in society is not working or there's a problem here that people aren't solving properly. I'm actually going to go and do something about this and not talk about it or whinge to my government or whatever. I'm going to put time and money and effort into solving this particular problem. And, yes, I want to return for it, but I'm willing to take the risk and put in the effort to solve that problem. And if we didn't have people like that, we'd still be living in caves.
2: <laughs> yeah, and small business too, Simon, is, is the backbone of the whole economy. You know, like Definitely. So many people in in the country are employed by small business. Absolutely. So you know not only small business owners, you know like ourselves, going out there paving the way, having the lots and lots of sleepless nights, trying to manage relationships and and kids and all the other fun stuff that comes with it. Particularly if you're working with your uh, your partner as well, it always adds another layer of complexity. And it's like where does business stop and where does personal begin? But it's that that element that that small business itself is dramatically undervalued or under per- perceived as, as lower value. And there was a story once. I, re- I remember a guy, uh, this older gentleman was at an event because uh, they were talking about selling businesses. And this guy you know, got on the microphone and stood up and said, oh, uh, it would have been nice for me to know this a couple, like, uh, like 18 months ago or two years ago, whatever it was. He said, um, because I had a business and I didn't know you could sell a business, so I shut it down. And they're like, oh, so tell us about your business. He goes, oh, it was a 35-year business and, and my kids didn't want it. I was making about $2 million a year. We had team that had been there for, you know, a decade or more. And so I wound it up. My accountant told me to wind it up. And everyone just went, Ugh! you know, like, what? It was like a knife to the heart that everyone could feel this guy's legacy was just taken away from him. Because he had this business doing 2 million profit a year, which is probably worth, you know, three, four times multiple, depending on who you're going to, maybe slightly more even, depending on who you're going for, gone.
1: That's insane.
2: Just evaporated all his whole life's work. It was like freaking tragic.
0: Absolutely. And and you know, the thing is, and I'm sure, you know, tell me if you have a different view here, guys, but I, I look around out there and I see so much information on how to start a business, how to grow a business and how to have a business plan and all this sort of stuff but there just wasn't enough people talking about how to actually exit, how to actually finish the journey and you know like the the example you gave there Sean like some people will work for 30 40 50 years right in this in this business and there's not enough focus on on how to actually finish that journey properly. So it's the whole thing they've run a marathon They've rounded the last corner, there's 100 metres to go and whoop, that's where they fall over and break a leg and, and they end up dragging themselves over a finish line in a horrendous fashion in a lot of ways. And some of them, it's not always tragedy that they end in. Like sometimes they, they'll lend and they'll have money and they'll probably be able to live comfortably, but it could be the difference between ending comfortably and ending amazingly well and having a massive impact and leaving a wonderful legacy. And, you know, just being able to, I guess, not, I don't want to say tick boxes, It's it's about leaving feeling like you're fulfilled and you've you've completed your purpose. As I say, there's just not enough people that are talking about that. And how do you actually leave fulfilled? You know, how do you complete your purpose in, in that business journey? And to your point before, Sean, there's a lot of people that will say, oh, I'll sell your business for you. Yeah, I'll sell it. I'll sell it. You know, <laughs> that's great. Like a lot of people could sell a business, but I would hate to think that I would sell a client's business and a year later they turn around to me and say, Simon, that was the worst thing I ever did. I wasn't ready for this. I wasn't mentally prepared for what life would look like afterwards. i am just gutted. And by the way, that happens a lot to people. Yeah. And why? Because a lot of people say, oh, yeah, you should sell your business. It'll be great. you have some money in the bank. Yeah, money in the bank's nice, but if you don't have any purpose in life and you don't have any direction, well, you know, money's actually kind of meaningless in a lot of ways.
1: There's a lot of psychology around it, isn't there? Like we love starting stuff. We love doing new things. We love whether it's a relationship or the end of a three series binge on Netflix, whenever it comes to the end of something, it's an uncomfortable place to be. Do you, do you see that psychology in what you do, Simon? Do you, do you see that there's a there's some real angst in that part of the business transaction?
0: Yeah, definitely. And this is the thing, this is why I, I think it's, you don't want to wake up one day and go right that's it I'm done sell the business. Like you know that is the worst possible way to to actually exit because you've not thought about all of these non-financial things. Not to mention by the way that if you do that you, the valuation may not be worth what you want it to be worth and you've got no time to fix it. So so yeah mate look I definitely think that's that's an issue around that kind of remorse factor. People need to be thinking about Know what does legacy mean to me? And legacy, most people think legacy means, oh, my name's on the door. It's Simon Bedard and Associates, and I'm worried about what the next guy will do with it. No, most people don't name their business like that anymore. It's it's about what will people think of you and what you've done after you've left the room. And for some people, they'll say, That means nothing to me. I don't care. And if that's the case, great. You have no emotional attachment to it. That's absolutely fine and probably quite a mental healthy place to be if you've thought about it and agreed on that. But a lot of people have deep relationships with suppliers and customers and staff and other people in and around the business and they, they believe the business itself had a purpose and they care about that purpose and where it goes after they've handed the baton on.
1: And every business serves a purpose, right? Like every business worth selling is actually is serving somebody. It's like retiring. Like it's like, wow, well, I've run this business, family business, 30 years, I'm going to leave. And it's like you're not just leaving your business, you're, you're abandoning a huge part of your identity. And I want to
0: stop you there, Boo, because only for the fact that you're right. And a lot of business owners do have that exact thing. They feel like they're losing a part of themselves and they feel a sense of loss. Some people even start questioning their sense of self-worth. What I'd be advocating for is, you know, you don't want to have that feeling of loss. You don't want to attach your business and your sense of self-worth to each other. I think with enough time and thinking and consideration, pondering, get advice, whatever, but... You want to detach those things. You want to be able to see your business as its own entity so that you don't feel that sense of loss, that that you can actually part ways with it and go, hey, you know what? Like, yeah, there will be things about this that I will miss, but I know that it's going to go on and do its own thing. I've got to set it free and let it become whatever it's going to become. And I know that I have a sense of purpose and worth over here doing other things. You know, that to me is a great outcome because... We want people to be happy and excited about the next phase of life. And let's be honest, like change is the only thing we can be really guaranteed of in these sort of things, right?
2: Absolutely. And, and I have music to my ears, Simon. So mean, I mean, that's a big part of the mentoring program I run uh, in a circle is the goal is to move people from where they are, basically being a business doer or not even a business owner most of the time, you know, where the business is actually being run on their own nervous system. So if they have a good day, they're all happy. And if something happens in the business, they're all down in the dumps and they're all being smashed energetically. And it's like a, you know, the pendulum just swinging backwards and forwards, up, down, up, down, up, down. And it's, it's a nightmare. I know I was there for many, many years in my own business journey, but, but seeing that, uh, as you're saying there, you know, it's about separating oneself from the business. And it's like if you, when your kids grew up and became teenagers and left, you were still attached as if they were, you know, a one year old, you're going to have a lot of trouble letting go of them actually, you know, leaving the nest, so to speak. And that piece that we focus on is moving people to that investor mindset so that they actually look at their business as an investment, not as them. So it's, it's, and it's a journey as you said before you can't go oh, I'm, I'm over it I'm done I'm going to sell it tomorrow well if you do that 90% of it's not ready you're going to get cents on the dollar in value of all of the years of work you've put in what's best to do is and for, for everyone on the, you know, this thing and I'm going to ask you something about this in a sec but there's to start now start building the business so it is saleable you don't have to sell it but build it so it is ready to be sold at any given point in time you may keep it for another 10 or 20 years but if you've got it to that point where it is saleable, it's purely a decision because it's no longer part of your identity. And, and I guess that's, that's you know, the question that's, that's coming from in, in doing some you know, a bit of research and background on yourself and what you stand for, Simon, is, is um, one thing that came up in one of your videos is I want to ask you, how important has it been in your own journey to have people to give you advice, to mentor you and support you on your journey?
0: Yeah, massive, massive, Sean. So just to, I guess, paraphrase what you were saying there, we've got a little bit of a saying here in our business is that at the end of the day, none of us are actually born to do business. Business is just a a thing. It's a creation to solve problems and whatever else. We're actually born to live our life. And I believe that your business should simply be a vehicle for delivering you the life you want. So the most important question you should be asking yourself is, not should I grow by 10X and blah, blah, blah. It's what life do I want? What's important? And I don't mean by just, I'd like to drive a fancy car and all that stuff. That's all lovely. And that's all okay if that's important to you. How do you want to spend your time? What do you stand for as a human being? I always think too, if you want to know what's important to a man, look at his diary and look at his credit card statement. You'll see where they spend their time and money, right? And so I, I just think a lot of people, before you get to the business stuff, ask yourself what's really deeply important to you as a human and then start saying, well, how do we shape this business to deliver what we want over here? And and you asked, how do I see advising and consulting and and external advice as being important? I see it as being critical. I have a business coach. I've got plenty of advisors around me. I've always had mentors in my life, even sometimes when I actually didn't realise they were there. They're just the most beautiful ones because they put up with you despite your, you know. Bullshit. (laughs) bullshit and you, yeah you, my childish tantrums that i'd probably throw and <laughs> my wife's probably laughing right now when she hears this guy. you still do that actually. we've, we've all been
2: there and i saw Booty that the other day so <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's not doing his job today yeah uh, yeah look I, you know we've just watched the olympics right and i i, I don't know about you blokes but every, i reckon every time i turned the tv on i had tears in my eyes looking at how good some of those sports people were and how what amazing humans they were You know, you want to perform at a a high level in anything in life. You need a coach, you know, and whether you want to call them a coach or an advisor or whatever, like at the end of the day, you need somebody to call you on your bullshit, to give you some guidance, somebody who knows how to do the things you're doing, probably in a better way, and just
1: hold up the mirror sometimes, right? Well, we we can't do it to ourselves. As much as we think we're the most self-aware, self-diagnosing, spiritual tree-hugging machine, we're just not equipped. We're too busy doing. If we were reflect all the time, we're not doing anything. And I was thinking about this today, actually. It's an interesting point, you know, how you could diagrammatically represent it. You know, it's like if you had someone standing next to their best friend, right, and you'd have, what do you think of yourself? And it'd be this tangle of emotions and thoughts, and then you'd have your best friend. It'd be like, oh, you know, cool, caring, and relaxed. Boom, simple. As you get older as well, and you think of all the years you didn't have someone like that, and you're like, oh, all those decisions, all... All I needed was just one person. It's amazing. I think that's such awesome, um, awesome advice, uh, Simon. I've got a question for you. A lot of people talk about what uh, what, what business to get into in terms of having low barriers to entry. What are easy businesses to start? What grows quickly? Are there some businesses that are just easier to sell than others? I guess I get asked
0: questions similar to this. I guess a lot of it has a: Are there industries that are better, or are there kind of different models that are better? And the answer, of course, is yes and no. The easiest business to sell is the one that's hotly in demand by buyers. (laughs) Like if somebody wants to buy it, well, it's going to be reasonably easy to sell. Of course, actually determining what buyers really want and stuff like that is always a lot more complicated than than what a lot of vendors like to think. So, I think if you're looking for things that that people should try to build into their business, I'm a massive believer of you know, looking at your, your business through the eyes of buyers and saying, well, what, what would somebody want? You know, How do I shape my business for value? Because I do think a lot of business owners, we, I'll include myself in this as well, we all get caught up a little bit with the whole, oh, we've got to get more revenue and, hey, we need to squeeze more margin and more profit. And revenue and profit are critical in any business, as we all know. But they're not actual value drivers. They're, they're outcomes. And so I'm always sort of suggesting that we need to look within the business and say, well, what's the qualitative elements? What is your system for generating revenue and profit? So there's lots of little things like, you know, what's your business model? Are you transactional? Are you project-based? Do you have ongoing revenues? You know, I'm seeing amazing things happening with businesses out there with nice, stable, recurring revenues. Why? Because it's related to risk. I think when you're looking at a business, all business buyers fundamentally, they're looking at your business and saying, I'm looking to purchase your future stream of profit and revenue, of course, and then applying discounts to valuations based on risk. So you need to demonstrate that there's less risk in your business, that there's going to be a problem delivering more revenue and more profit.
2: So Simon, can I just jump in for a sec there? right? One key point that people need to hear, and they don't seem to hear it, which is it's better for you to find the risks in your business and remove them before you try and sell it to somebody else and they uncover those risks. Yes. So hence going back to get somebody who can advise you and say, hey, you know what, your systems and processes suck. Yep. You know, that uh, all the knowledge is in your head and, and it's too risky that if you get hit by a bus, someone buying your business is not going to be able to run your business. And and so the, the key, what I'm hearing from you, is get Clear on the risks first before you start to sell it because you're going to maximize that. Then there's less places that person can apply a discount to the value because you've already plugged all those holes. Yeah,
0: yeah, you're spot on. I'll say a couple of things around risk. One is you need to be upfront with all those risks because everything comes out in due diligence, absolutely everything. And I'm of the view that no business is actually perfect. So if we start with that as our premise, We don't expect this business to be perfect. Neither does the buyer, by the way. So we're just better if we have risks within our business. Yeah, sure, if we can fix them or mitigate them, great, let's do that. But if we can't mitigate them all, and let's be honest, we can't mitigate every risk in life or there'd be no return, let's put the risk on the table with the buyers. Let's identify it. Let's name it and say, hey, we recognize that there's risks in this business. Here's how we would deal with them if we remained in the business. Of course, you may have a different view, but by being upfront and being open and talking about those things, you actually build trust and you're more likely to get a transaction done. So so that's the first thing about being upfront and being open about potential risks in your business. But the other thing I'll say about risk, because it's a funny one, is that a lot of business owners actually don't see the risks in their own business. And this is the thing about having an advisor, right? Sometimes you're too close to it, can't see the forest for the trees. I'm sure we can come up with a whole bunch of analogies and, and, you know, sayings and cliches around this. But I liken this a little bit to flying. If I'm shit scared of flying, I don't care what you say to me, I'm going to see a lot of risk in getting on a plane. But the pilot who's sitting up there and he's clocked up thousands and thousands of hours and and no, I didn't pick this just because Boo's a pilot, but the pilot obviously has a very, very different sense of the risk of being in that plane. Now, the reality of that risk, we're sitting on the same plane. The risk is the same to both of us, but our perception of those risks is very, very different. So... What, a, what an owner needs to do, and clearly the owner is the pilot in this case, right, is that they often don't see the risks how other people might see them. And so we become used to things in business these days where it just, you know, they, we haven't had any dramas, so I'm not thinking about it anymore. I don't perceive it to be a risk any longer, but somebody new coming in may see red flags going off all over the place. So once again, you've got to get out of your kind of groove of being the business owner and this is my world with my blinkers on, walk around to the other side of the table and say, well, if I was in their shoes, if I was buying this business, where would I pick holes in this?
2: Absolutely. One thing that I found too in this process being on both the seller side and the buyer side, more so on the buyer side, a business partner and I rolled up a number of mortgage broking businesses a number of years ago rolled them together, got massive you know, arbitrage, which is an uplift in value just by buying something. You know, We made, I think, seven figures of, of increased value just by buying stuff. People don't understand how to do that. And today's not the podcast to teach you how to do that. But the point is that as a buyer and a seller, one of the statements that, that I was told very early on from a, from a mentor of mine, an early mentor of mine, is that every conversation is a negotiation. So we've got to look at it and say, when we're in that transaction, whether we're a buyer or a seller. We've got to look at it and say, okay, what are my must-haves in a situation? And what are my nice-to-haves? So you do not budge on your must-haves, but you be flexible on the nice-to-haves. Because if you can give on one hand and have the other party give on the other, it may balance out, but it still doesn't move your must-haves. And part of the thing as a buyer, one of the things I always did was always put in place a level of insurance, so to speak, by not fully paying for the business up front paying based on performance. Sometimes that meant that over that 12 months, I actually paid more for the business than I agreed to in the first place. Therefore, the seller got more.
1: You're talking about buying a business or getting married, mate? I'm, I'm,
2: I'm, I'm getting lost. <laughs> it might be interchangeable, but likewise, one of the businesses that we, that we bought, which was a uh, just under $2 million acquisition, we he- withheld some of the funding because part of it was f- uh, vendor finance, so financed by the person selling it for those on the podcast that don't understand what that means. They'd funded half of it. So we funded half of it with cash and they funded the other half. And we had some ratchet clauses in there, which meant that if they didn't meet certain requirements, their team went and stole the clients off the book, which they did. We got to claw it back and we ended up pulling back $280,000 off that purchase price to protect us, right? Because that person, the seller's team didn't do the right thing. So you've got to look at it and go, okay, well, that was a risk for, for me as a buyer and I mitigated that risk as much as I possibly could. It still hurt. Didn't, we didn't get quite the outcome we wanted, but it was still a profitable purchase. But you've got to have that ability to negotiate that there isn't just one way. You don't just sell a business, get a big check, and walk away. If you're willing to stay in that business for a period of time to impart the knowledge and, the, and support the new owners coming in or whatever, you can potentially get a higher value. You know So... Let's have a scenario, right? Let's say that um, uh, Boo's selling his business, right? And and I come along and I'm a potential buyer. I'm interested in buying Boo's business, right? What's the worst thing Boo can do right now for the next six to however many months it's going to take to actually get that transaction locked away? What's the worst thing he can do?
0: And there's so many different variables here, <laughs> that you could be talking about. But one of the big things I see is business owners get tapped on the shoulder by a prospective buyer who says, oh, hey, I'm really interested in your business. And let's be honest here, right? Somebody taps you on the shoulder and says they want to buy you. I mean, that's a pretty kind of cool thing to have happen, right? I mean, head starts to expand rather rapidly. You know, uh, you're starting to walk a little bit taller. You feel good about yourself. And, of course, often that kind of approach comes from a nice kind of non-threatening friendly source. And so you feel pretty good about this relationship and you feel pretty good about the whole potential outcomes. What I'd say, though, is that a lot of people go down this path of dealing one-on-one with a buyer who's reached out to them and they they just look and I'm not saying that this is intentional, but often they just end up getting burnt. And the reason for that is that the buyer has reached out to them and the buyer has very specific criteria that they want. And, and they ask for information and then they need more information and they have lots of meetings and the vendor at this point, point in time, the seller, has spent an enormous amount of time and effort, it's sometimes like a second job, trying to move the needle on this. And of course, six months in, they're now starting to feel quite committed to this because somewhere in the back of their brain, they've started spending money. You know, they're starting to see the beach coming and they're they're getting excited about this next stage of life. And, you know, really often they get to the end of this process. And by the way, I've seen this take 18 months with some clients where they get to the end and the buyer's like, do you know, I just keep seeing little things and I keep chipping away at the price and discounting it and discounting it. And that's when the final offer comes in and it is so much lower than what the actual owner, A, thought it was worth and B, was originally told. And there's this feeling of immense loss and sometimes betrayal. They feel like they've really been led up the garden path. Many of them will basically throw their hands in the air and walk off. Others, unfortunately, actually just go, oh, my God, I'm so beaten down, just take the deal. And, and I think those are less than ideal outcomes so, you know, I'm not sure if this was the particular risk risk you were referring to, Sean, but I'd always just say to business owners that when you go to sell a business, you either put buyers through a really robust process that's designed to get the outcome you need, or they will put you through their process. And I can tell you their process is designed to get them the right outcome, not you.
2: Totally agree. That's what I was getting at is the fact that it starts to distract business owners and even to add to that, you know, one of the transactions I supported probably about seven or eight years ago now, they had offer just, I think it was, let's just use some round numbers. It was about 800 grand was the offer, you know, on this business. It was well and truly worth that it took like nine or 10 months to go through. And what had happened is they're like, cool, this person's going to buy it. So for that nine or 10 months, they started working on their next business. (laughs) And so the current business's results started to go down, 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 down. And by the time they sold it 10 months later, they got 450. So they almost got 50% of what they originally going to get because they took their eye off the ball. So the thing is, until the money's in the bank, you've got to act like your business is still your business 100% and it's not being sold.
0: And you're going to run it for the long-term too. Don't do short-termism just because you're in the middle of a transaction. In fact, I even get asked the question a lot as to, oh, we were thinking of investing in this thing, a machine, a process or whatever. It could be ISO, whatever. Oh, I'm wondering if we should really be spending that money because it might come off our, you know, it's an expense or whatever, and it might reduce our profit and, look, you know what, run your business like you're going to keep running it forever. Like if you believe that is the best thing to do for your business to keep it growing, buyers understand those decisions. And quite frankly, I think they would take a lot more confidence out of the fact that you're thinking about maintaining and growing value in that business rather than trying to make a short-term clip. And by the way, take advantage of that and squeeze them for more money.
2: And of course they can see it as blind as day. They're like holding back or they cut team numbers versus the previous year to bolster the profit or something and you're like mm, am i buying a house of cards here
0: everything comes out in due diligence right and one thing i'll say is i have so many people who create this analogy of selling a business and selling a home you know and and hey we've come almost full circle here about the legislation and why people probably draw those parallels but at the end of the day, selling a business is almost nothing like selling a home. You know, Nobody ever walks into a business and goes, oh, God, I love the kitchen and bathroom and it's so close to the school. Let's just pay the extra 50 grand. You know, no one ever does that. So if anything, it's the complete opposite. People come in going, this is business. I need to be shrewd. I need to ask questions. I need to really cr- think about everything and question everything. And by the way, I'm bringing my team of advisors who are bloody well smart people who are highly educated, and they've done this before. So <laughs> you need to start with understanding what the rules of the game are. And in my view, you're dealing with smart people. These are, you know, once again, not stupid people. So they're going to see what you're doing and they're going to understand the context. So I just think make decisions with the best intentions at heart, make decisions with the idea of growing and building and maintaining value and be upfront and open about things. And you're far more likely to build trust and get to a good outcome rather than trying to play silly buggers and play around the fringes.
2: Totally agree. And that's the thing, as you said, people don't understand the fact that uh, often that their business is actually their most valuable asset right? Not only is it, unlike, oh, but I've got a home and it's worth $1.5 million. That's great, but does it give you an income? Yeah. No, it doesn't, right? And can you sell that home for two, three, four times its profit or plus assets and stock and whatever else? And then you end up with 4 million bucks cash in the bank, you know? And it's like, I think people just don't seem to see that all the work they're doing shouldn't be for profit focus. Yes, profit is important, absolutely, because then you can reinvest it and everything and live off it and all of that. But it has to be run in parallel, as I understand it. You need to run your business's value creation as well as profitability at the same time. Yeah, and not skimp, not save. Put those systems in place. Buy that bloody machine, because if someone then buys the business, they're going to buy the machine anyway when they buy it off you. So don't wait. you're creating a better business that may produce more profit by the time you go to sign the deal. Therefore, you get a three or four times multiple or two and a half times multiple, whatever it is, of that extra profit at that time. So you've got a bigger sale value because you've kept focused on growing a very good business because the goal is to build a good business that has value. That's what people want to buy. Imagine as well you get,
1: you know, like an entrepreneur – gets that right and they're they're gunning for every extra dollar all the way through to the sale they've got the exit in mind before they started right so do you see that 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 mindset is different compared to a family business second generation it's easy to take a business for granted when it's been around for a while. It's it's hard to remember how freaking hard it was to start and get it to a point where it was sustainable. So do you see different mindsets when it comes to that exit?
0: Absolutely you know, for those who are in Sydney and understand the accelerator scene and all the rest of it, you know, Stone and Chalk and all the rest of them down at Windy Station there, nobody understands the idea of exiting and starting with the end game in mind more than a tech startup today. These guys go all in. they have begged, borrowed and stole, family, fools, friends. They've got every last cent that they could possibly get. They've thrown it into the adventure. They are all in. And they know if they don't get that big exit at some point, it could be lights out. So they get it. They're working towards that end game. And it is a very, very different mindset to say somebody who is in a 40 or 50 year family business. You know, I've got a number of clients and have had many over the years that are family run enterprises. It could be 20 years old, it could be 40, it could be 50, where the father, the patriarch, usually was working somewhere, thought he could do it better, went out on his own, started a business. Literally, you know, used the coins in my pocket to buy one widget, sold that widget, went back, bought two more and so forth. And next, you know, they've got a business 40 years later that's turning over 30, 40, 50 million dollars. It's provided their family with an amazing life, an amazing life. But often they've never really thought about exit. They've never really thought about planning it. And I'll say a few things here. One, usually they've never structured things properly. So the entity could actually be owned in the wrong name. They've not thought about tax. They've not thought about
2: IP or anything. Yeah,
0: right. And IP is the big one. We've got a number of clients who have gone and then opened up or started selling into the US and where do you hold licensing and IP and all this sort of stuff versus operating entities. So all of that structuring stuff needs to be right. And the sooner you do it, the better, because there can be capital gains implications. But then, you know, all the way through to what does it look like for the family? And I'm going to say, you know, I've had lots of clients where, you know, there's maybe two siblings in the family now and one's worked in the business for 25 years while the other perhaps has, in a lot of cases, gone off the rails a bit or just chosen a different life. And there can be real conflict at a family level. And then all of a sudden, because there's no rules of engagement, there's no mechanisms to handle some of this stuff, you start seeing parents, perhaps in their heyday, starting to try to hate I'm feeling a bit older. I really want to help this one son or daughter. I'm going to start throwing money at them and, you know, try to buy their way out of problems. And the other siblings, like I've been working for 25 years. I deserve better. <laughs> All this stuff, right? It becomes really, really complicated. And I think there's a, there's a three-circle Venn diagram for every industry, right? Here's mine. There's a circle that says family members, there's a circle that says business owners, and there's a circle that says employees, and they all intersect. And so where they intersect, it actually creates seven different types of stakeholder. Oh, I'm a family member and I work in the business, but I have no shares. Oh, I'm an employee and I'm a business owner, but I'm not part of the family. You know, all these different stakeholders who all have different needs and different desires and All of a sudden, we find ourselves with a very large asset making lots of money and lots of people with different agendas. (laughs) And nobody's actually had a discussion around, well, what would be a smart, orderly exit for people as they get to the point
1: where they want to get out? So how do you manage that? How do you manage expectation? Like what's some of the storytelling you say there? I guess one extreme is, all right, well, just let's just say this business didn't exist or it was owned by an institution. You must be a bit of a a counsellor as much as you are an advisor.
0: Yeah, very much so, mate. I, look, I often liken it to a big bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> you know, There's all this stuff and where does it start and where does it end? And if I, and, and here's the classic, right? So many business owners that we speak to, if they're smart people, they're caring people, they're empathetic people, they love their family, they love their employees, they want to do the right thing. And so they see a particular issue they're trying to solve and they go, okay, I'll pull this lever because that'll solve that problem. So they pull that lever, it solves that problem, but then three others pop up because they pulled that lever. So they end up pulling levers and nothing ever seems to be right. So really the short answer is that you need to sit down and start to unpack these things, try to separate and isolate the various different issues in their life. Okay, there's some family and relationship stuff here, there's some employees over there that we want to take care of, there's other shareholders in the business, you know. And by the way, shareholder agreements, please. Like when you start a business and you're all friends and you all love each other and you're hugging it out and high-fiving about the new world and we're going to take it over and it's great, that's the time to have a shareholder's agreement and have a real conversation around, hey, what happens if I want to leave in five years or you want to leave? Or what happens if we end up hating each other? That's the time to do it. And have a, maybe have a beer and a laugh about it if you need to. But do that talk, have a shareholder's agreement, put in place a mechanism for people to get out because this stuff happens all the time. <laughs>
2: And and so I'm going to add to that, um, having owned a legal practice for nearly a decade and focusing on on estate and business succession was a big part of what we were doing. The damage that's caused by not having that in place or if you realise you don't have it, The earlier you can get it in place, the better. And I think one people think is like, I don't want that included in the shareholders agreement. That's unfair. It's like yeah, but it applies to you as well. Yeah. So if it's if it's applying to that person, it's going to apply to you. And it's often that there's this ego attached to it. It's like you're trying to screw me or something. And it's like, well, no. What we're trying to do is trying to protect that. What if this happens? What if someone gets sick or dies? You know. There's their wife now going to come in as a director and try and run the business when she's got no experience and suddenly diminish all this value that you've built and the legacy that you're trying to create? And so if you, and again, that's that advice piece. You need to get experienced solicitors to actually give you the appropriate advice around intellectual property, around your structuring of the business, for tax, for asset protection, for all of those elements. You need to get the appropriate advice around that as well. Absolutely.
0: Definitely. Keyman Insurance is a good one as well. People don't get it because they think they don't need it. No, we're just a small company. But then all of a sudden, next you know, they're turning over 10 million bucks and like, wow, this thing's actually spitting out a lot of money. Oh, wow, this is actually worth something now. And look, let's be honest, circumstances change, people's approach changes. The time to get the agreement done is while you're completely aligned. And so key man insurance, all that sort of stuff is critical. And for anyone listening to this, if you want, would like to speak to someone about all that, it's not my area, I recommend people, feel free to reach out to me, I'll put you onto them. But go and have a talk to a specialist, whether it be the lawyer, the insurance specialist. You know, these things need to be in place. If you need somebody to obviously talk about it and, and kind of collate the ideas before you go to the lawyer, that's great. That's where exit planners, advisors and stuff like that come into play, but do it.
2: And it's much cheaper. Don't have the discussion about what you want when you're talking with the solicitor in front of you because they'll just sit there nodding and every six minutes, change, change, You've got to get somebody else who can actually, in a neutral party, give you a framework, perhaps create a term sheet or something like that so you've got it written down in front of you and you go, you know what, Simon? Yep, I'm happy with that. Are you happy with this? Not quite. Let's tweak it. All right, let's give that to the solicitor and get them to – put it into the context of, of a, a shareholders agreement. It's such an undervalued element of business because, again, it's that concept, I think, of Steve Covey, it's start with the end in mind, right? The goal of you starting the business isn't to have a business that fails. Your goal of starting a business has a business that succeeds. And so if it does succeed, that's where the problems happen. If it fails, there's nothing to divvy up anyway, right? Or well, maybe debt. But, the, but if it succeeds, that's where the problems start to come in
0: yeah yeah look absolutely you know one thing i'll say if anybody is a listening to this who's a business owner and can relate to the kind of proverbial bowl of spaghetti and the complications with all that sort of stuff i guess if i could share one little piece of advice for them is that there is no silver bullet to this stuff there is no one perfect solution where everybody walks away 100 happy and gets what they want life is about compromise and everything you do will have compromises in it but Like I keep saying to my kids every day, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. It's not what you do, it's how you do it. And it's the same thing here. You're not going to be able to give everybody what they want. But I think if you have a really thought out approach, you've got a clear plan, you can communicate that plan and show people how you're considering their needs. You can walk through this thing and and get to the other end with some really, really positive outcomes. And, and while everybody not, might not jump in the air and go, I, yay, I've hit the little jackpot and got everything I want, they'll walk away feeling good about the way they were treated and usually they'll walk away feeling happy. And, you know, that's a, that's a pretty powerful thing. And, and I think ultimately, you know, if you are looking at the bowl of spaghetti, there is a way to walk through so you can see some light at the end of the tunnel. So don't feel like it can't be solved. There are solutions. Absolutely.
2: So one question I want to ask you is um, clearly you've learned a lot in your time and your career and being in business, corporate, other areas, you know, seeing a lot of business owners clearly and them in those different phases of, of you know, looking to prepare a business for sale or selling a business and the aftermath of that and all of the stuff that comes with it. So what's something that you've picked up, like a real piece of wisdom or a nugget that you've picked up that you would love to take back to a younger version of yourself? What would that piece of advice be that you would give to yourself?
0: God, you know, I have so many. I was such a naive, arrogant twat when I was young. So, um, <laughs> pardon me. I probably shouldn't
1: say that. I, I just yeah, you're, you're you're a guy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: The amount of mistakes I've made, and 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 I probably wasn't all that great at taking the advice. I had to go and learn things the hard way, and all the rest of it. So, I, I think one piece of advice is seek out people who have been there and listen. You don't necessarily have to implement everything exactly the way they say it, but take it on board with a sense of humility because I see my kids do this to me, just like I did it to my parents. You know, when you're talking to people sometimes and you can actually see that they're only listening to respond, not listening to understand. I'm just waiting for you to finish so I can say what I want to say. No, actually stop and listen to these people because you can learn a lot and save yourself a lot of time, money, heartache, all of that sort of stuff. So, Keep an open mind, really listen to people and seek more information. Beware of your own biases. You know, we convince ourselves of so much shit that, that is not real, but we just keep telling ourselves it's real and, and you know, convince ourselves that that's, that's the way things have to be done.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I just did a keynote yesterday and one of the areas I've been researching is cognitive bias. Do you know how many there are? 188 separate cognitive biases that shape your thinking and decision making we've got no hope no hope to make good decisions yeah you know and it's funny isn't it like i keep
0: hearing the advice i try to give my kids and it keeps coming back to me as advice that's actually valid for all humans you know but it's i I always say to my kids it's you know don't ever be scared of asking questions in class you know i know when i was a kid i was scared to put my hand i asking questions because i thought everyone would think i was dumb Whereas now you actually sit there and go, oh, I get it. The kid's actually asking the questions. They're the smart ones. They're the ones that actually recognise they don't have the answers and they're willing to go seek those answers. And so apply that to your own business for a moment and start reaching out to those who can perhaps add value and keep an open mind to it. So so that's that's one. I think it's a mindset thing there. The second piece of advice I want to give people is actually, circling back to what you said, Sean, you already nailed it, is that you should build a business that's saleable. It's just an asset. It's not you. So build it in a way that the business can be sold. Even if you do not want to sell it, you might be thinking, I'm going to hand this business down to my kids and my grandkids. This will be a multi-generational, wonderful legacy thing. It's fabulous. And all of that is wonderful. And then tomorrow, somebody gets hit by a bus and your entire life changes. And all of those requirements change. And so if you build a business that is saleable, and this is the most important thing here, it gives you options. It keeps options open. It allows you to have flexibility should life change. And, hey, let's be honest, life changes all the time.
1: Mate, great advice. You've been working on that exit to this interview all day. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, Drop that mic, mate. I love it. Well done. <laughs> Thanks, Simon. Super insightful. I just, my brain goes off with the fairies a bit when we have these conversations because it just springs up so much of your own life and your options and you're like, oh, we're taking notes got to do this i've got to do that no doubt if you and sean you know, found yourself in the same bar with the beer you could regale yourselves on all sorts of uh of micro transactions which you know we'll leave out of the scope of today's podcast and that wraps up another episode of the few Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development, and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Thanks so much for taking time out of your uh, your day. I think there's so much value there. You might not be looking to, to exit tomorrow. It's never too early to start thinking about how you're going to leave, is it?
0: Yeah, look, definitely. I, one of the things I'd say is that, Generally speaking, usually, unless maybe you're Alan Bond, you're only going to exit a business once. To that end, it may end up being tomorrow or it may be in 10 years' time. If you just have some questions that you just want to sort of sound out to somebody, reach out. I'm happy to jump on a call. There's no expectation for people to do stuff. I mean, at the end of the day, if we can provide some value, fantastic. You know, if you want some more help down the track, lovely. If you don't, that's cool. We want business owners to end well. We want them to have a good journey and have a good finish to that. And, you know, sometimes just a cup of coffee and a quiet word will help people get over the line with that. And yeah, very happy to help with that.
2: And appreciate that, Simon. And the other thing is that obviously if someone's thinking or even borderline thinking about selling. Having been in this industry too, sometimes it'll be a couple of years before someone says, you know what, I'm ready to actually go. Let's let's do something. Let's work together and move forward. Cause I'm actually ready now to to consider selling and preparing a business and taking the time required. So, you know, reaching out to get some certainty around, well, these are the types of things you need to do. I think that's going to be really, really beneficial. Cause the earlier you start, the higher the value is going to be when you actually go to exit.
0: Indeed. Give yourself some runway, right?
2: Indeed.
1: Thanks so much, mate. Exit Advisory Group, Simon Bedard, B-E-D-A-R-D. Whack it into Google and uh, follow the yellow brick road.
0: Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one
2: of The Few. We'll see you next week.